Well, church, great to see you guys again today. And uh, if this is the first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a series back in the fall in the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're continuing in that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we've transitioned in our series a little bit to the teachings of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're focusing on, uh, specifically the parables that Jesus taught in. Parables were essentially stories where he's looking at different things that are taking place in the world around him, and he's likening spiritual truths into these normal everyday stories. And so uh, they're kind of great things for us to be able to hold on to. Uh, the parable we're going to be looking at today is going to be a parable about an, an, an unfor unforgiving servant um, and really what to do when someone sins against you. And so uh, typically we come in and we talk about sin, avoiding it, uh, repenting from it in a number of different angles. And so this morning is going to be literally about like what to do uh, when someone is sinning specifically against you. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He put it like this. He said, everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea um, until he has something to forgive. Is he right about that or not? Like, right, like that, like we all love it. We're like, come on, preacher, preach forgiveness. Like, I need it big time. I need someone so to forgive me. But uh, it's like a whole different ball game and stuff when it's you who've been offended. And when that offense is a legitimate offense and when it's not just a small minor detail, but it's a deep pain that you've carried with you for a really, really, really long time. Like, how do you go and forgive someone for the sins that they've committed against you? Never forget a, a few years back, I was at a pastor's conference in town with a number, number of different pastors in the area. And one of the pastors who is probably one of the most well-known in really the entire country, but they happened to be here, he was being interviewed and uh, just an incredible man of God. I really respect him a whole lot. But the interviewer asked him this question. He said, okay, what is, uh, what's been the most difficult thing about your ministry to date? And I'm kind of expecting, okay, balancing this enormous schedule that he has, traveling all around the world, doing interviews, the whole deal. I'm expecting something like that, but he just pipes up and he goes, honestly, the most difficult thing about my ministry has been dealing with the un unbelievable amount of hurt and pain that I've experienced from people that I've loved and trusted. And he went on to explain just how, he goes, you know, when you get to, you know, a position like this, a lot of people envy celebrity, a lot of people envy fame. He's like, there's nothing envious about it. He goes, you get to the top and you cease being a person, you start becoming something that people feel like needs to be torn down um, to even the playing field. And he just went on and told story after story of, of a friend who was an interviewer at a paper and writing this article that would completely twisted the entire article. He talk, started talking about hiring a friend on staff, a dear, dear friend who ended up stealing and embezzling money from the church and not being repentant or remorseful about it, instead feeling entitled because he, this guy over here had experienced a lot of um, worldly success and fame and that kind of a thing too. He started talking about the people that slandered him and blasted him on social media, the people that said, hey, we're with you, help us build this church, and then we're the first ones to, to, to cut him down and to slander him. And church, like, how do you deal with that kind of a pain? How do you deal with when it's, 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 it's people that you know and love that are out there and they're openly sinning against you? What do you deal with the pain when it's a mom or a dad and it's from your childhood and, and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for some sort of genuine remorse or repentance and, and you're just never getting it? Like what do you do when it's an ex and, and you know, they've left your life in shambles and you're looking at what they're, what they're doing on social media and, and they've moved on and they've got a new family and they're living it up and they're doing good and, and, and having so much fun and, and literally you're doing everything that you can just to pay the bills and to keep your, what's left of your family there together. Like how in, the world, um, how in the world do you figure out a way to forgive when that's the last thing that you want to do? Like that's what Jesus is going to be dealing with in this parable uh, for us this morning. And so just a little fair warning right here. It's not an easy passage uh, that, he, that we're going to be looking at. And so 
If you have your Bibles, Matthew 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 15, and we're going to go all the way through 35. The, the passage I want to look at does begin a little bit earlier than the parable does, but it's a fascinating chapter where Jesus begins, and his disciples have come to him and asked him this question. They say, okay, Jesus, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> Great question to start with, right? Like, who's, who's awesome in your kingdom? And, of course, Jesus turns it upside down. He's like, you see these kids over here? They're the greatest in my kingdom. Their innocence, their childlike faith, he turns it around. They're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, taking everybody by surprise. And he says things like, woe to the person who causes one of the least of these to stumble. Woe to that person. It would be better to have a millstone hung around their neck. And so he's just, he loves the children. He loves the innocence. And he loves the childlike faith that they bring to the table. He goes into a familiar parable about how he loves the lost sheep. We talked about that a few weeks ago in a different scenario right here. Um, essentially to kind of make this connection that, that these people here, like they've done things. They are the lost sheep. And that's kind of the context in which he starts moving into first this section on reconciliation. He's going to get into this process of reconciliation that needs to take place. And then he's going to be talking about forgiveness. And there in the middle, there's going to be the delineation between those two things. Reconciling a broken relationship and forgiving someone who doesn't want to be reconciled. And so let's pick it up together in verse 15. That's where he's going to start. He says, here it is. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, then you've, won them then you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that's the process of reconciliation. Uh, we've talked a lot about reconciliation just two months ago, did an entire big thing on, on reconciliation. But essentially, uh, we, we've talked a lot about that. There's a few things taking place here in this passage I kind of want to draw out real quick. Number one, uh, the context in which he's speaking to, he's talking about a broken relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? These are specifically believers who share the same values that you do, share the same love and, and fear of the Lord that you do. Uh, they surrender to the authority of God's word. You're on the same uh, same conviction level as anybody else. And so that's what he's talking about, brothers and sisters. We're not talking about confronting other people that believe different, have a different authority structure and everything else. Um, number two, it's a legitimate sin, right? We're not talking about some sort of an annoyance. I don't like that you didn't put the toilet seat down or whatever it may be. Like this is a legitimate sin. And even more than that, specifically, it's a legitimate sin done against you. Now, depending on the translation that you're reading from, um, some translations are going to say, uh, if your brother or sister sins, go to them. And then others are going to say, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to them. There's a little difference there, too, right? Uh, one is just, hey, is this just, hey, do I call out my brother or sister any and every time that they sin? Am I always knocking on their door and be like, wrong, 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 you know, constantly kind of doing that? Um, I don't think that's what it is. I think he's specifically talking about sin against you. And as you're studying the scriptures, you look for clues throughout there to be able to tell that same thing. I, it's the question that Peter's going to ask here in a little bit. It's a very personal, how many times do I need to forgive someone who sins against me? And it's also the parable that Jesus is going to be talking about here in just a little bit. It's a very personal type of a sin. And I think that's the context of what he's talking about. So it is legitimate sin among believers, and it's a personal thing done against you. They're gossiping about you. They're lying uh, to you. They're slandering you. It's adultery. It's envy. It's something done to you. And Jesus is going to say, in as much as that is taking place in the community of believers, the very first thing that needs to take place is you need to go to that person and talk to them rather than about them. 
That's what you do. Like, you, don't just, you don't just make up in your mind what you think is going on. You don't assume that they're going to understand the problem that you're having. Uh, you don't sit there and gossip about them behind their back. You don't just be passive about the whole thing. The very first thing that you do is you go to that person and you talk to them uh, in hopes that if they listen to you, then you've won them over, right? Like that's the entire goal is that this relationship that is broken, that is hindered by whatever this error and grievance is, is actually going to be reconciled in union with one another. And what he's saying is uh, if you go and talk to them and, and, and they listen to you, then you've won them over. Hooray. That's, that's kind of the big deal, what we're, what we're all shooting for right there. And what Jesus is saying is that sometimes it really is that easy. Right? Like sometimes the, the pain and the, the torment that you're feeling inside, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, um, whatever those, that, that is, like sometimes it really is as easy as simply going to that person and talking to them in, in hopes that that thing will be reconciled and healed. I told you a few months ago the story of uh, some good friends of ours. Uh, she was uh, about to have her very first baby, uh, was working in this small, great company. The owner was a believer as well. Great friendship between the owner and she. Um, and they were just upstanding people. She got pregnant with her first child, and, and all of a sudden, the, the owner, um, in his stupidity, really just, uh, he cut her hours down, reduced her pay, and transitioned for the, the new person that was going to come in and take her place. And they'd planned, they'd talked about, she said, okay, I'm going to have the baby, I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to be done. That part was, was clear. But uh, he's making plans and immediately goes to action. Her hours, by the way, that's very illegal, right? You cannot do that. It's a horrific, it's a horrific thing. And so... Um, but he just goes in and he's trying to think about bottom line and how to manage his business and, and just blows the entire thing. Meanwhile, she's planning for having her first child. You can imagine the amount of emotions that you're probably going to be having at this time. Not only are you three to five months pregnant at that time, but you've been horribly wounded by a brother in Christ who is a dear friend, someone that you trusted with information you didn't have to give in the first place. And uh, so she's really, really angry and upset about the entire thing. And she and her husband are talking, how do I deal with this? Here's my last day is coming. And so they're getting to that last day. And it's one of these things where it would be awesome. It would make an incredible movie, you know, to go in that last day and like turn over the desk and like tell him off and put him in his place and, you know, make him feel the full wrath of what, what's going on inside of you. And she and her husband took a lot of time to pray about it. And she decided, you know what, I'm going to do exactly this. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to him. Last day comes and she goes into the office and she can't control herself. She's just like, she's in tears and he's going, what is, what's going on with you? What's wrong? And she just very honestly shares with him the, the, the amount of pain uh, that he's brought on. Like, you don't understand. Like, not only is what you've done is illegal. Like, you are a friend. You've, you, you've hurt our family. You've, like, you've taken money away because I got pregnant. I mean, all these different things. And the guy just looked at her like a, a, a blank ghost and his face went white and he just started weeping. He just started weeping. He's like, I cannot believe I did that to you. And he just very, very solemnly just started weeping. And he's like, can you ever forgive me? I want to repay this. I cannot, in my stupidity, in my blindness, I did this. All I was thinking about was the company. and I didn't even consider you. He just owned every single bit of what he did. Genuine remorse, genuine sorrow. And they came together, they hugged, they're continued friends to this day. The relationship has continued, and there's been complete healing. And what Jesus is saying, church, is that sometimes uh, the, the pain and the stuff that you're experiencing inside, it really is as simple as being willing to get up and go to someone and talk to that person rather than just about them. 
Sometimes that really is the thing that you need first and foremost. And what you're going to discover is if you'll do that, you're going to figure out, hey, the circumstances that, are, that I'm dealing with here, uh, maybe they're not as terrible as I thought that they were. Or maybe that person is not as evil as I've made them up to be in my mind. Or maybe it really is as evil and horrific a uh, situation and a crime as I thought it was. However, you're going to realize that in that moment, um, the power of an apology and genuine remorse and genuine repentance in the middle of that moment does unbelievable wonders in reconciling a broken relationship and healing a gaping wound inside of your soul. And you're going to discover these things. And what Jesus is saying is that sometimes, like the pain that you're experiencing, step number one is to go directly to that person and talk to them rather than about them. And sometimes it really is that easy. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're going to go talk to them in that, that, that ideal scenario of tears and repentance and remorse. Like, that's not your story, right? And so he keeps going and he says, okay, if that's your story and, and they don't really care, you brought them the thing and they said, deal with it tough. That's life. Get over it kind of a thing. Then your next step is to go and grab a few friends, two or three witnesses, trusted confidants, other believers, and go and approach them and talk to them about the exact same thing. So step one is one-on-one. -on -one. Step two is grab a few friends, phone a friend, and essentially go and do the same thing. Now, when we're talking about getting a few people involved in this thing, we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about an intervention, right? And we're not talking about bullying people either. Very, let's be very clear about this. We're not talking about an intervention necessarily or bullying people and kind of teaming up against them, shaming them into some sort of a, a fake repentance or something like that. We're talking about gathering two or three trusted witnesses, either friends, people in the know, who can come in and be objective witnesses that will come in and help mediate the broken relationship that you guys are experiencing right here. And so these are people that are going to come in and they're not necessarily going to side with you. Right? I mean, have you ever been in this place where, um, have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you're kind of looking at them going like, you stinking hypocrite. Take the giant log out of your own eye. If you could just see what was going on over there, you would know that you're the one that's in the wrong. You ever notice that? Right? I mean, the reality is that if you're able to see that in other people, it's likely that that same problem exists in you. If they can be blind about the things that they're doing, it's also just as likely, guess what, that can happen to me too. In the middle of my defending myself, in the middle of, of, of building up my pride, I could be horribly wrong and blind to the things that I need to be able to see. And so these witnesses come in, and they're going to help people see things objectively. You may need to be called out. They need to be called out too. But in the testimony of a few people, they're going to be able to come in and say, hey, Brad, you were right about this situation. And, buddy, you need to repent. That was horribly wrong in love, right? And, or they're going to come in and say, hey, yeah, uh, Brad, uh, Brad you're, you're, you're wrong on that thing. You blew it again like you always do. It's that terrible vest you wear, right? right? I'm just saying, sorry, I don't know why I'm picking on you, Brad. Um, but they're going to be able to come in and bring that objective witness. And, of course, ideally the, the thing is, okay, maybe if one-on-one -on -one didn't work, three-on-one is going to work. There's going to be repentance and reconciliation that takes place. Yeah, you've won them over. If that's not the case, and they continue, Jesus says, okay, I want you to take it another step further. And he says, if they're continuing to be unrepentant, that relationship continues to be broken, then he says, come and uh, tell it to the church. Now, when he says tell it to the church, we're not talking about coming and bringing it publicly in front of a church and shaming that person in front of everybody. He's talking about coming and telling the leadership within the church. There's a progression taking place. First, you go one-on-one, -on -one, talk to them rather than about them. Second, you go grab some friends, phone a friend, bring them in. If that doesn't work, bring in some leadership within the church. They're going to come and bring a little bit of maybe authority to the situation. If they're a trusted member inside the church, they recognize that authority. 
um, maybe you can come in and they're going to be able to bring a little bit of gravitas to the situation and help them see what's really taking place. Again, in an effort that there's going to be reconciliation that takes place, it's never about coming and bringing a person in front of everybody, shaming them for the things that they've done and casting them out among the wolves, right? And, and, and I feel like I need to say that because unfortunately that has been the testimony of so many people over the years. Not necessarily here, maybe it has been at some point, but, um, but, but maybe that has been your testimony, a brother, a sister, a friend, a mom, a dad. You grew up in this church and you know what, they were in sin and all of a sudden, the boom, they found out about it and, and the entire church knows about the story. It's not what Jesus is prescribing right here. He's saying bring them in, maybe another conversation among trusted leaders here in order that that, rec- that relationship may be reconciled, that peace may be won. That is the ultimate goal. And he says this, and he says, okay, even if step number three doesn't work, they refuse to, continue, they refuse to listen, even in that scenario, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Easily one of the most misunderstood passages that you're going to come across. People suffer, and they bleed, and they are wounded forever because they have completely misunderstood how Jesus treats sinners and tax collectors. He loved them. He ate with them. He dined with them. He went above and beyond in seeking the lost sheep, loving the lost sheep, sharing the love of Jesus Christ, which he was, with the lost sheep, right? Like he went above and beyond to love and woo them in. Granted, there's a difference between a believer already and someone who's not a believer, but he's gonna go after that person, love them, care for them. He's not bringing them up there, shaming them, casting them off and saying, be done with them. You're in relationship, pursuing them, doing everything you can to communicate that love and that there is hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And so immediately right here, again, the entire point of this whole thing is that, is that the, this relationship, which has been previously fractured, is going to be won again. Now, here's the question that I have for you. When was the last time you went to that extent in order to repair a broken relationship? Most of us don't even get to step one. Most of us are kind of going, you messed me over, we're done. Like, when was the last time you went to that extent to love another brother or sister in Jesus Christ? To the fact that you sit there and you go, okay, they don't want repentance. Okay, I'm going to bring in a friend. I know this is awkward and I know this is painful, but we need this thing repaired. And that's not working. I'm going to bring in church leaders and stuff and they're going to help me out too. Like, when was the last time? Like, this is the extent Jesus wants us to go to make sure that we are living in unity with one another and we are, we are communicating love among brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to say, we are the body of Christ. You're a hand, I'm a foot. You're an ear, I'm an eye. I'm a nose. You hurt, I hurt. You're dysfunctional, I'm dysfunctional. You and I are deeply connected with one another, and this relationship that we have going on here, even though we may not be besties that go see the movies and stuff together, like, like this thing matters. When was the last time that you went to that extent in order to be reconciled with the lost or with the sinning brother or sister who sinned against you? And this is an eye-opener. This is a big thing that was a huge conviction for me because I'm sitting here going like, it, I can think of probably two times it's come to my level right there as a church leader here and trying to reconcile with a relationship. And honestly, those weren't even, they weren't even desiring reconciliation. I'm kind of just wondering if we're willing to even go to step one in order to do that. Because Jesus is saying right here that there is incredible hope. Uh, that is in how important it is that we live together as one. And he says this, okay, as you're loving them as tax collectors and sinners, and you may need to go back to the beginning of the gospel, it's still not done there. 
The very next section, again, another misquoted section of scripture, he says in verse 18, here's step four, if you will. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, that's kind of confusing a little bit. Hold on. 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now again, what's the context for this passage? Anybody heard this quoted before a thousand times? Is he talking about you getting together in your small group and praying for a Cadillac? Right? Two or three gather. Hey, you said, if we agree on it, we all want caddies. Right? Is he talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit's an extrovert and he likes to only show up in large crowds and stuff like that? He's not with you in your personal quiet time. He no longer lives inside. Like, theologically, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. His presence is with you. He's there with you in your quiet times. What he's saying here in the context of reconciliation is what he's talking about here. Step one, you go one-on-one. That doesn't work. You phone a friend. That doesn't work. You phone the church. That doesn't work. You gather with your friends together. Two or three gather together in my name in unity, you pray and ask for anything there that's according to my will. Uh, he's saying that the Holy Spirit will look on that with favor and he will move in a supernatural way when two or three people come together and pray. It's why we do freedom prayer, is it not? It's why we do what we do. It's why we say, hey, you want freedom from sin. You want freedom from uh, the brokenness in this relationship. We have you come in with a team of people who will agree with you in prayer. We will call upon the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to breathe life into whatever's going on here, all for the praise and glory of his name. And we've been seeing God do miracle after miracle after miracle in people's marriages, broken relationships, and all throughout their life. It's why we do what we do. But it has nothing to do with Cadillacs, and it has nothing to do with, hey, he's an extrovert that just likes the crowds. It has to do with the community of people being firmly committed to the unity through which God has called us through his son, Jesus Christ, by his shed blood. Being fully committed to that and saying, you know what, I know that you've offended me, but I'm willing to do the hard work of loving you because I know Paul says love is patient, love is kind, meaning it's not going to be easy. It's going to require patience. It's going to require you doing things you don't want to do or feel like doing. But I'm that committed to you that I'm willing to go and have a tough conversation and talk to you directly about it rather than about you behind your back. And then I'm willing to bring in the friends and then the church, and then we're willing to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying for that reconciliation to take place. And church, some of you need to hear that because you're sitting here kind of going, okay, my situation right here, it's a little bit too far gone. I've gone round one, I've gone round two, I've gone round three. This thing ain't happening. And what he's promising here is if you will keep praying and you will gather friends and you will keep hoping and keep pursuing this thing, the Holy Spirit will do something miraculous in response to those prayers. Maybe the thing will be reconciled, maybe it won't, but he will work a miracle inside of that midst. Now, Peter's going to ask this question that we're all, asking, we're all thinking at the same time, right? He's going, okay, round one, two, three, four. Uh, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive someone who keeps sinning against me? Like anybody else kind of like Peter, you're going, uh, how, how long do I hang in here, right? Clearly they're not getting the message. Clearly they're unrepentant. They don't really care. How many times do I need to do this? Like seven times, Jesus? <laughs> I, who else is like that? You're like, seven seems like a fair number. Like I, I, I'm done after seven. I uh, gave you seven shots. Like who would be married after that, right? Who would still have friends? Um, and, and Jesus just looks at him, and you know what he says here. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 seven times. Literally, the word is 77s. And again, he's not talking 490 times. He's saying the number of completion multiplied out. It's an infinite number of times. In other words, Peter, what you don't understand is that if you're going to be a disciple of mine, 
you're going to be a follower of mine, then you better get really, really, really comfortable forgiving people that don't deserve your forgiveness because that's what I came to do. Infinite number of times. And at this point in time, Peter's got to be thinking to himself, but how in the, like, what, what? Jesus, I don't think that you understand, like, what happened to me when I was a kid. Jesus, I don't think you understand the things that are taking place to me, against me right now. You don't understand the battles that I'm facing in America right now. You don't understand the things that people constantly say about me because of who I am, because of my income level, because of my skin color. You don't, I don't think you fully understand. And so Jesus goes into this parable, this story right here to, to explain why it is that way. And he simply says this. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot of gold, okay? Now, commentators are going to make this point. Uh, billions, most of them are going to be saying that's going to be in the trillions of dollars today. 10,000 bags of gold is an insurmountable debt no one's able to pay back, which is the point of this entire parable. And it says in verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold in order to repay that debt. All, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him and he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. So the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. Notice the disparity here. 10,000 bags of gold and 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, said the exact same thing, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had this man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. Then he went and told the master everything that had happened. So the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers, meaning the tormentors, in order to be tortured until he could pay back everything that he owed. And then Jesus wraps it up with this terrifying conclusion statement. Here's what he says. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ouch. Like I told you, like this is a heavy parable. And a lot of us, we love the parable and we will leave off verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What's he saying right there? Is he saying that your salvation is contingent upon your ability to be able to forgive people that don't deserve your forgiveness? It's not what he's saying. The reason we know that, again, look at the clues throughout the text. The parable is not in response to who's saved. It's not even a message about salvation or anything like that. It's a message about specifically forgiveness going on um, here. And furthermore, the guy clearly was forgiven of all of his sins. There was a debt that was repaid or that was not repaid. It was completely forgiven. He was set free. And so he's not teaching that you're saved, then you're not saved, then you're saved, then you're not saved, then you're saved, and you're going back and forth all over the place. What Jesus is saying right here is that if you cannot learn to forgive, then you're going to live in prison for the rest of your days. If you cannot learn to forgive, you will live in a prison for the rest of your days. And at this point in time, like some of us are kind of listening to this and you're kind of going, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Like some of us are listening and we're kind of going, okay, 
now it's all making sense to me. It's, it's, it's why I'm always angry. I mean, it's why I'm, I'm constantly filled with bitterness and resentment. It, it's, it's why I see someone on social media or even in person and my blood still continues to boil and I hold it over and I can't let go. It's why I'm not able to sleep. It's why I'm not able to keep a job. It's why I'm constantly depressed. It's, not, it's why I've, I, I'm ruining my marriage right here. And some of us are sitting there kind of going, yeah, yeah, it's a prison. You've been living in a prison and you cannot even see the bars that are around you every single day. Dr. Stephen Standiford, check this out. He's a chief surgeon at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And he says that unforgiveness is actually a disease that is classified as such in medical books. Did you know that? Unforgiveness is a disease that is classified as such in medical books. He talks about how it actually makes people sick and keeps them sick. Reason is it produces a chronic state of anxiety, which produces way too much adrenaline and cortisol, which depletes the production of natural killer cells and keeps your body from being able to fight against disease. Church, it's a prison. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you, if you continue in the path of unforgiveness, you refuse to believe in the gospel, you refuse to hand it over and to trust in God for the peace that you're ultimately longing for and you choose to hold on to it, you're going to be living for the rest of your days in a constant prison. And what Jesus is saying, church, is that it's not how it was supposed to be. The keys to your forgiveness, have, the keys to your freedom are found in your ability to forgive. Like that's the whole point of the parable. Like forgiven people, forgive people. It's, it's just what we do. It's the entire point. If you've been forgiven, then you should forgive. Forgiven people, forgive people. You and I have had this insurmountable debt against us that we were unable to pay. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who are righteous, not even one. There's none who seek after God, not even one. The wages of our sin is, is death. We are lost and dead in our sins. And he, we are hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. And in the middle of this place, God in his infinite love, verse 27 says that he looked at you and he took pity on you and he canceled your debt and completely set you free. Colossians 2 is going to say, he forgave us our sins and he canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which condemned us and he's taken it away, nailing it upon the cross. In other words, he's not taking that debt ledger and hanging it in front of your face, making you feel shame over and over and over again. He's not crushing you under the weight of it. He has nailed it to the cross once and for all so that you are forgiven and completely set free. Paul's going to say, don't you know the wicked will not inherit the earth, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, etc., etc. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, meaning you were completely cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You were sanctified and called holy, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, meaning you and I have been declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because Christ's blood has made you righteous, and because of what he's done on your behalf, you have the capacity to stand before a holy God, not condemned, completely forgiven, and completely completely set free. Church, like, it, it, and what, like, that's what he's done for us. And if that's what he's done for like, how in the world can we not do the same? Like, forgiven people, forgive people. It's, it's what we do. Like, forgiven people, forgive people. It's just what we do. Like, we don't sit around waiting to feel like forgiving someone. You forgive by faith, and the feelings will follow. That's what we do. You don't sit around waiting to, forgive, to feel like forgiving somebody. Like, you forgive by faith, trusting that the feelings will follow. It's the life of faith. He's called us to walk by faith. We do things we don't want to do. Like we follow him and we trust that the feelings will come later on. We forgive first and the feelings will follow. It is faithfulness first and the feelings will come follow. If you started a workout plan in January, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Like if you've been out of it for, for years and years like I have and you start up again in January, you know that on a January morning you're not waking up feeling like going to the gym. Yet you know it's exactly what you need to do. And you also know that if you keep going day after day after day for months down the line, at some point in time, your feelings are going to catch up with the faithfulness of going to that gym day after day after day. You're going to feel healthy. You're going to feel better. You're going to see some gains. And things are going to catch up to that faithfulness which you choose to walk in. Church, like that's been the call of Christ. Follow me. And the feelings that you ultimately desire will catch up later on. Like it is forgiveness first. And then comes the feelings. You know why? It's because forgiveness has nothing to do with rewarding people who are deserving of it. In other words, you and I will never feel like forgiving someone that does not deserve your forgiveness. Like it's not a reward for the deserving. It's not a gift for people that have earned it. I mean, the parable is clear, like there's nothing this guy can do to earn that master's forgiveness. He'll never in a million lifetimes be able to pay back that debt. And church, like some of us are holding on to unforgiveness and you refuse to forgive someone who's, 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 uh, who's hurt you. And you're holding on to it and you refuse to do so until they repent enough. Or they say the right words or they show enough tears and remorse and things like that. And, and what Jesus is showing, like there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Not everything will be able to be reconciled. Not every relationship, reconciliation is the reunion of a broken relationship. That requires repentance, that requires remorse, that requires conversations. It requires two people motivated to come together and to be united together again as one. Not all relationships will be reconciled. Not all relationships should be reconciled. If you find yourself in an abusive situation today, you need to get out and get separation and get safety. And we will gather together for you and pray. And we will keep you safe. But not all relationships should be there right then. There's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. And what Jesus is saying is if step one doesn't work, step two doesn't work, step three doesn't work, step four doesn't work, that person does not care to be reconciled, then you walk in forgiveness. And forgiveness is a unilateral act of faith whereby you cancel someone's debt not because they've earned it, not because you feel like doing it, but simply because it's exactly what Christ has done on your behalf. That's what forgiveness is. It's a decision that you make by faith to forgive someone's debt simply because it's what's been done for you. And here it is. What Jesus is saying is, church, like if you can learn to walk in that disposition and you can learn to walk in forgiveness day after day after day, then you will be free. And then you'll experience the feelings that you're ultimately longing for and you're trying to find as you hold on to and cling to that unforgiveness. Church, it's exactly what we saw from our brothers and sisters in Christ from Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I shared that story a few, a few months ago, 2015, a kid named Dylan Roof walks in. You remember this story, the headlines? He walks in in 2015, and for an hour he participates with that church. Bible study, prayer, putting on the mask. About an hour into it, he stands up and starts shooting up the church. When he's all finished, nine people are killed. Many more are critically injured. A little later on, he's in the custody of police, and he admitted that his sole purpose was to create a race war in the United States of America. He wrote down in his journal, I want to make it abundantly clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I haven't shed one tear for the innocent people that I've killed. Church, how do you forgive Dylan Roof? How do you forgive Dylan Roof when it's personal? And you were in the church. Your family was in the church. 
People of your color were in that church. And it's an extension of things that you've experienced all the time. How do you forgive Dylan Roof? And, and you remember the story, right? Like the church, they, they, they show up at his, at his hearing. They go to the court. And, and they give the church an opportunity to stand up and say some words to Dylan. Right? And you remember what they say. One by one, they stand up. And one lady, uh, the daughter of a murdered churchgoer, meaning her mom was killed, I'll never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Another one stands up, another relative of a victim says, we have no room for hate, and so we are choosing to forgive you today, and I pray that God would have mercy on your soul. A representative of the church stood up, and people were wondering, like, how in the world are you guys able to do this? Like, Dylan doesn't deserve it. He didn't ask for it. He doesn't even want it. He hates you. How do you do this? And the, 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 the spokesperson stood up and said, our forgiveness is not a matter of emotion or the summoning of positive feelings about Dylan. We don't have much of that. All we have is a conscious act of love and a decision to let go that reflects the kind of forgiveness that we have first received from our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, were they ever reconciled? Should they have ever been reconciled? Heck no. I'm not calling up Dylan Roof to babysit my kid. We're not going to the movies. We're not going to dinner or anything like that. It's, It's the nature of forgiveness. It is an act of faith. It is a unilateral act of faith whereby I'm choosing to let go of a debt that is owed to me simply because it's exactly what God has done for me in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting in him and him alone to provide for me the peace and the healing and the joy and the satisfaction that's been robbed of me in that experience. It is always an act of faith. And some of us are kind of looking at this going, okay, well, that's easy for those people because uh, in your friend's story and in Dylan's story right here, justice was actually done. Like Dylan was going to prison and he's going to get justice for it. But like, what, you don't understand, Aaron. Jesus, you don't, you're kind of like Peter at this time. You're kind of going, okay, I don't think you fully understand. The people that I'm talking about, they still don't care. And the police aren't after them. They're not sitting in prison anymore. They're completely set free. My ex has a brand new family and they're living it up. And meanwhile, I, I can't even pay my bills. Like some of us are sitting here going, like, you don't understand like what happened in my childhood and my parents, they're around and they pretend like it never happened. Like, they were silent the entire time. And you don't understand, they left, they robbed me of having a father. You talk about this good and loving father all the time. I have no concept of what you're talking about because I never experienced it in my, in, in my life. And some of you are kind of going, okay, that's great because Dylan's getting justice and stuff, but like, how in the world am I able to forgive? And the answer is, like, you will not be able to unless you are fully convinced of how deeply you've been forgiven yourself. Like, church, like, how do you do this if you're not in a daily habit of going to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer every single day, in confession, being reminded of the gospel, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner, every single day. Father, I've sinned against you again. I I, I do not what I want to do. I do the thing that I hate. God, have mercy on my soul. Like, how do you do this if you're not in a constant rhythm of coming before him every single day, letting his blood wash you completely clean, receiving the grace and forgiveness from him that is yours if you recognize it and just receive it? It is already there. It has been fully taken care of at the cross. How do you walk in this kind of infinite forgiveness with people that do not deserve your forgiveness unless you are receiving of it every single day from the Lord Jesus Christ? God, here I am again, a broken sinner. Be merciful on me, O God. How in the world do we do this if if you're living in a prison of self-righteousness? 
Right? That's what we're doing in unforgiveness. We have created this system whereby we've created this caricature of another person that is not based in total and complete reality, whereby I am clean and pure, and that person is evil and deserving of whatever I choose to give to them. You ever had a caricature of yourself made before? You know, the street vendors you're walking through, and they draw the funny picture and stuff. I got a picture of it right here. I, if you've ever had one of these, it's kind of a, a, a painful process, right? These are a couple famous ones right here. You know, our, our past two presidents right here. It's a painful process because what you're going to do is you're going to sit down in the chair and the artist is going to look at you and they're going to take your most distinctive features about you and they're going to blow them up. They're going to take the things that you're insecure about, the things that people made fun about, big ears, big teeth, orange skin, giant comb over, all right? And they're going to take those things and they're going to blow them up and you're going to be defined by those things. Like, is that not what we do? When we're sitting in the prison of self-righteousness, we create caricatures saying, that's who they are, big teeth. That's who you are, orange skin, giant comb over. You're defined by these things over here. Why did that person lie to me? It's because they're an evil, no good liar. Well, why did you lie to me? Well, I got my reasons, right? Isn't that what we say? I, you made me. I, I was protecting you. I was this, that, and the other. Somebody lies against you. They're a liar. They're the person. Like, they are evil, incarnate liars, you do it, you've got reasons, you've got excuses. It's the caricature of sin. I'm good, I'm clean, I'm pure over here. Your big hair, your big teeth, your orange skin over here. We create caricatures when we are trapped in the prison of self-righteousness. Church, how do you break out of that if you are not at the constant foot of the cross, being reminded of the overwhelming amount of grace that you have received through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is the gospel that reminds me that, hey, you know what? Whatever took place, whatever they did against me, maybe I have not done those exact same things. Maybe they've out me on earth. But it is the gospel that reminds me that the call of God is a holy and perfect standard, and I too have fallen short. It's the gospel that reminds me that essentially that God has called me to take a small, tiny little rock and throw it over the links of the Grand Canyon. And I may be able to throw that rock a little bit further than my mom did or my dad did or that bully in high school or the person down the street or whoever it may be that you're upset about today. But at the end of the day, we both have the exact same problem that we can't throw that rock across. We are both falling short. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are both in desperate need of God's grace. And in the middle of that place, the God of the universe looked upon us in love and it says that he took pity on me and he canceled my debt and he completely set me free. Church, if that is what God has done for you and me, how in the world can we not do the same for people who sinned against us today? Like how are we gonna do this if we are not at the foot of the cross every single day being reminded of the enormous amount of grace that has been given to me that I could stand in right standing before a holy God? Church, like how do we do this? And Martin Luther, Martin Luther during the Reformation, I, I mean, it was said of him that he would go and he would spend an hour every single day in confession. Martin Luther was a monk. What do you, what do you confess about for a, for a monk, right? I, in an hour a day, he is before the Lord. God, I've done this. I've sinned against you here. An hour a day. How in the world do you go and preach a message of grace when an entire church, all your friends are calling you a heretic, kicking you to the side, kicking you out of the church, offending you, want nothing to do with you? How in the world do you cling tightly to the message of grace unless you are fully convinced of your own sinfulness, your own insurmountable debt, which God has freely get forgiven in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Martin Luther King Jr. did the exact same thing during the Civil Rights Movement. He would get away fasting and prayer retreats. He would go in a room and he would just confess, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, give me the ability to give grace and forgiveness to the people who sin against me. Like, how in the world do we do this if we are not constantly at the foot of the cross? 
being reminded of the unbelievable grace and mercy and forgiveness that Christ's blood has accomplished for me. We cannot do it if we're sitting in the prison of self-righteousness. A number of years ago, I was at a conference, and a speaker came up, and he had us go through a practice. And I've never been much about practices before, but he had us go through this thing, and, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty powerful exercise. But essentially, he had us create a debt ledger of forgiveness. Anybody ever know what debt ledgers are? I was a speech communication major at a and I didn't ever do that. So um, we're debt-free now as a church, and so don't have to deal with them anymore either. So, um, but uh, basically what you're doing is you're, it's, it's a statement about who owes what and exactly what the de- debt may be. And so he had us write out on a piece of paper this debt ledger of forgiveness. Number one question is this, um, who I need to forgive. And for some of us, when we started talking about forgiveness this morning, we walk in and, and immediately you know exactly who that person is. It's the mom, it's dad, it's brother, it's the neighbor, the uncle of the church. It's people, it's community, it's the way our country is right now. It's a number of things. It's whatever that thing is that keeps you awake at night. It's that thing that makes your blood boil. It's that thing that makes you um, not be able to treat certain other people as image bearers of God. Whatever that thing is, we need to take a moment and we need to identify who I need to forgive. And maybe as you're going through this process, you, you may be coming to this realization where you're kind of going, it's not so much someone else that's out there, but it's the mirror. It's the reflection in the mirror. It's the person that I need to forgive is me. I've never been able to forgive myself for the things that I did in my past. Whatever it may be, you've got to write that out. Who do I need to forgive? The second question is, what is the debt that they owe me? And this is the part of the exercise that gets really, really difficult. It's why you can't do it in just a minute. It's a thing that you take home and you write it out and you write down mom or dad or brother or sister, whoever it may be. And then you start thinking about the debt that they owe you. And this is a time for, where honesty is okay because it's a legitimate debt. The man owed 10,000 bags of gold. That was a specific number of very, very specific debt. And as you pray and as you get really, really honest, you're going to write out things like, Mom owes me my childhood back. Dad owes me love. They owe me 15 years since they left and abandoned the family. They owe me financially. They owe me my innocence. They owe me years of depression. And as you're writing these things out, it's okay to write them out because they're legitimate debts. What happened against you is a legitimate evil. It's horrifically wrong. You're not minimizing the debt that you're owed. It is what it is. But it's also a recognition that there's nothing that they're going to actually be able to do to actually repay you from what they owe you. And so you're going to write this out, and it may be a dream. Some people were saying, hey, my business partner and friend, they... They messed over my entire family. They stole it, and now I don't get to pursue that career. And I've heard that a lot this past week. And he says, you're going to finish writing this up, and then you're going to have a decision to make. you got one of two choices. The first choice is you can choose to hold on to that debt ledger. But he says, if that's going to be your decision, then at least be honest about what you're doing. Write it out on that piece of paper. I demand repayment. And then he says, you may as well laminate it. You may as well hang it on your wall. You may as well put it next to your TV so that every single time you're reminded of why I'm so angry, why I'm so bitter, why I can't let things go. And you know it's because I'm demanding repayment. The other option is to take that piece of paper and by faith, trust in the Lord to bring you the peace that you ultimately want through your previous unforgiveness, and you choose to rip it all up and hand it over to the Lord. 
It's never going to be an easy thing, and it's never going to be a thing that you, for, that you feel like doing. But the reality is that someone here this morning, like there's someone that you need to forgive. And for some of us today, this is the day that you need to be completely set free. And what Jesus is saying is that those, the, the keys to your freedom, like they've been handed to you. And they're found there in your ability to receive first and foremost through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then also be able to forgive those who sinned against you. So that's the challenge for today, that you'd be able to go and receive from him and be able to have the supernatural ability to forgive people around you.